Hello, and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode is called The Bridget Jones Method. Karen David talks to me about writing for young adults and about teaching and learning from creative writing courses. Karen and I have been published YA writers for the same amount of time, and we've been good friends for most of it. We taught writing for young adults together at City Lit in London, and Karen was one of the first people to read my latest unpublished manuscript last year. But there's still a lot I didn't know about how Karen wrote her first novel and how she approaches the craft of writing. Turns out it helps that she used to work alongside Helen Fielding. We recorded this episode in February 2020. Links to the resources we mention are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's lovely to have Karen with me this morning. Um, we've already had quite a chat, but uh, I, I've been saving the best for the podcast. I know we have a lot to talk about. Welcome, Karen. Thank you very much. I'm so delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Tell me, how did you start writing for children? Well, I had been a professional writer all of my adult life. I, I started as a journalist when I was 18 um, and through one job and another. I'd always worked as a journalist, so it was always non-fiction. I had always wanted to write fiction. I had no idea whatsoever how to go about it. And most of my career was before the internet, so I couldn't really start looking things up and researching things. Um, and I was very, very nervous about the idea of writing anything longer than about a thousand words, because that was, to me, a very, very long piece of writing. Right. Um, and I felt that writing for children would be a good way of going about uh, starting to write, because the books would be short. And I really did not think I could write. I mean, uh, you know, 20,000 words felt to me un uh, I, just something I wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. Um, I thought, I've got a seven-year-old, I could write books for him, they would be about 7,000 words. That would be a huge, you know, task to take on, mm -hmm. but I could probably do that. Um, so I was talking to a friend and the friend said, there's a course at City University called Writing for Children. I've done it. It's a very good course. Why don't you do it? And who was teaching it at the time? Uh, Amanda Swift, who yeah. was a wonderful teacher, uh, very informal, very fun. You know, the the whole emphasis was on here we are and we're going to have fun and we're going to play a bit. And right. I think that was the missing factor for me was that she would just, she would set us exercises. We'd have ten minutes. Mm -hmm. We would mostly work in pairs, which suited me very well, and we would just have fun. And the the mystique uh, was taken out of it for me, and it was like, oh yes, I can do this. It's fun. And so the course was a ten week course, like they are now. Um, yes, I think so. And she gave you these exercises, and I gather it was one of those that led to your first novel. So I had already, I'd been looking around for ideas, and I'd already had the idea of writing about someone in witness protection. Um, but I had, I had no idea how to develop that idea, mm -hmm. how to make it into a story. And then we did an exercise which was about character building. And literally, it was as simple as, uh, imagine a person who could be in a contemporary teenage novel. So I thought, oh, yes, boy in witness protection. Yep. Um, and then we had to get into pairs and we had to take our two characters and weave them together into a plot. And I actually worked with Amanda on this. And our plot was um, boy witnesses crime, 
boy goes into witness protection, meets her character, who was a girl who was a Paralympic um, disabled athlete. Oh, okay. Um, so she developed her character completely separately. Yes, from we didn't yours. really develop them. We just yeah. thought you know, someone, <laughs> someone who could be in a situation yeah. that one might write a novel about. Yeah. Um, and then literally we wrote Stuff Happens and then we would have the, the trial that he had to be a witness at. Mm-hmm. And then at the end they had to um, they had to, to be separated, but they made a, a pledge that they would meet again in two years. Mm-hmm. And I came away buzzing with excitement and thinking, that's a story. I could tell that story. I could do that. So I said to her, would you mind if I stole your character? Right. And and I, I try and work on it and I try and do something with this plot and she very generously said yes take my character and that was how I started writing the book which became my first book when I was Joe. How exciting and and so unusually your first book became something that was published uh, more than published did really well how exciting. Rejected by 25 <laughs> publishers. Well, um, that's normal. But it was it was which was heartbreaking at the time. Mm. Um, I think for me the thing was I had the plot, but the plot was very basic. Mm-hmm. So I then had to figure out how I was going to write it as a book, and um, for that I developed something which I now call my Bridget Jones method, and that was because I worked on the Independent when Bridget Jones was just a column. Yes, and I remember Helen, that vividly. Helen Fielding would write a different, you know, every week she'd mm. write an episode in the life of, of this supposed columnist, Bridget Jones. And at one point I had to speak to her and I said something like, oh, Bridget's life is, you know, getting a bit, getting a bit, I didn't say, I didn't say boring because that would have been rude, but I said something like, oh, Bridget's being a bit stupid. And she said, oh, yes, Bridget is being a bit stupid. I think I'm going to give her a new job. And that was that was when I realised that you could really just write something and just make it up as you go along. <laughs> and also, so I thought, well, I've got this boy. He's a very interesting boy. He's in this interesting situation. Mm. I'm going to write an episode as though I were writing a column in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Every single day, I'm going to write a thousand words and it's going to be an episode a day. And that's how I'm going to write the book, because I have no idea really how you write a book. So I I became very disciplined about doing that. And I think if you've been a journalist for as long as I have, you know the horror of having a white space in the paper that's waiting for your words. Mm. And you, you do get to the point where you go, that'll do. That'll do. It's fine. You know, and you sort of know, I'd been a journalist long enough to know that even though you think something isn't very good, when you read it in print, it actually is right. better than you thought it was. So I allowed myself to do that. And I, you know, had a, an idea of the plot, but I didn't really know how to do it. And I just wrote an episode a day until I had actually 60,000 words. Amanda was fantastic because Amanda would read the chapters. And I don't think I could have done it without her. She was oh, wonderful. Wow, and she, she would say things like, oh, I think we need... Um, I think we need the police at this point and I, I'd like to hear a bit more about this. And that was very helpful. And then when I finished it, obviously by the end of the book and all the episodes, I knew a lot more about the characters. And then I was able to go back and redo the beginning, redo the end mm-hmm. and then have ideas about the middle. Um, but just forgetting that first draft 
I think it was a very good method. I think it really worked for me. The Bridget Jones method. I really like that. And it sounds a bit like like Dickens or Conan Doyle, sort of serialisation. I thought of Dickens a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds quite arrogant. But I thought, you know, that it's 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 a tried and tested method. And I saw when when Helen Fielding took her columns and turned them into novels, I, I could see what she'd done. I could see how she'd done it. Right. And I thought, you know, actually, when you get to know your characters, that is when story evolves from um, the situation and the characters. And I think that's always for me. When you're a reporter, if if you're a good reporter, you will hear about something and you'll think, well, that sounds like a good story. And then you'll go out and talk to as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, very often that's how I, I write a book is I interrogate the characters. I say, mm-hmm. what happened to you? How did that happen? How did you feel? What happened next? There was a, an exercise we did when I was training to be a journalist that was about, we they videoed us um, interviewing people and they gave us a scenario and it was a family who'd gone to a safari park and they opened the window of the car and a monkey got in and attacked them and we had to interview them and the interviews were videoed and when um, my interview was videoed at the point where they said and then we opened the window you could see crossing my face the thought that was a stupid thing to do. <laughs> but I never asked the question why. And oh, actually, right. had I asked the question why, the answer would have been because there was a wasp in the car. Oh. And so I always remember that as, you know, actually, if you ask the right questions, yes. but you have to have a picture in your head uh, so you know where the gaps are. You know, you know, you know what to ask, but also you shouldn't be scared of asking the obvious questions. And I think very much if I'm stuck... I will sit down and I will ask questions of my characters. Why did you do that? What I'm were glad you, you say that because bizarrely, with several twists of fate, I I am now doing what Amanda Swift did then, and I am <laughs> teaching this exact course at City Uni. I hope mine's fun. Um, and I was teaching character this week, and I found myself sitting on a chair with an empty chair opposite me, doing what I call the Phil Earl method uh-huh. um, of yes, so putting my character in the empty chair and asking them, and then literally swapping. And even though I was just demonstrating demonstrating the principle of it to the students but I really felt a shiver as I swapped seats that suddenly the pressure on me to think through this character and be them um, it was a lot more um, sort of in-depth and real than it had been when I was when they were just sort of a a pure figment of my imagination Um, so it was a good trick to think of I think. There is this thing that I had read that authors say oh and a character start talking to you and I'd always thought what a load of nonsense (laughs) this is ridiculous but actually when you develop voice they do start talking to you and I think the wonderful thing writing when I was Joe was how this teenage boy took up residence in my head Mm -hmm. and you know I I tapped into my inner teenage boy and it was a very very uh, important thing to do yeah Um, years later I realized that I mean the book is about someone suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and I realized that I was probably suffering from that at the time yes and it was a very useful way of channeling a lot of that emotion oh that is so interesting 
I think you did a workshop course as well, didn't you, after the original Writing for Children so course? So Amanda had run the course, I think, about three times, and there were enough former students who wanted to carry on and actually work on a piece of writing that they, you know, that they were right working on. Mm. And there were quite a lot of us. And we all signed up to it. And I was very lucky because it came right after my course and right as I had started writing when I was Joe. And then when I was on the course, I'm afraid I hogged Amanda's attention terribly <laughs> because I was actually, I used it as a series of deadlines. Yes. So, you know, it was a 10 week course and I set myself to write the bulk of the book in those 10 weeks. And, did that and so work? I was turning up, you know, people were turning up and saying, oh, well, I, you know, I've written, you know, a few paragraphs. And I was saying, oh, it's chapter two, chapter three, <laughs> chapter four, here we are. And it did pretty much work for me. I was very disciplined about it. Um, my husband and I were sharing a laptop and I would have the laptop for two hours every day and I would write a thousand words. And I was very much, you know, going for it and um, taking it quite seriously. And I think if I'd given myself longer, it never would have been finished. But I was I was determined to finish it. When I was a teenager, I used to do patchwork, mm. but my quilts never were finished because I didn't actually know how to do all the finishing things around yes. the edges. Yeah. Um, and this was not going to be an unfinished patchwork quilt. This was going to be a finished object. The thing that I often quote is Neil Gaiman saying, finish things. The the art of finishing is a is a completely new art yes. <laughs> in writing. And until you've done it, you don't realise how much there is involved in that. And it's so important. I mean, like you, I ended up teaching that course and I have taught um, elsewhere as well. And the number of people I come across who've been working on something for years and years and mm. years, they have no idea how many chapters they have. They have no idea how many words they have. And I think... Almost, if you get into that position, you should just write to the end, I agree. and then and then make something of it that is is not this enormous, rather. I don't want to use the word self indulgent, but if you want it to be published, otherwise yeah. it can just be something that you love writing and you keep on going back to, but that's not going to get published. Yes, and often you need to go on to the next one and the next one, but also in, in the art of in the act of writing, I find it becomes something slightly different from what one had anticipated. And that's the thing that you end up working on in your next draft. And you can't do that until it's yeah. Until well, firstly, got the you thing. have to f discover the joy of editing and going back and changing things. I mean, I, I'm aware, as I'm saying this, I'm slightly hypocritical because as soon as I finished when I was Joe, I started writing a sequel. And, and that was, you know, that was ridiculous in some ways because I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I had no idea if any... I mean, my husband was, was going mad and saying... I did the same thing, can I just say? <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying, why are you writing a sequel when you haven't even got a publisher for the first one? And I had to write the sequel. I just had to. It was in me. Mm. The voice was very strong. And it was a, and luckily, eventually, I did find the publisher who wanted both of them. Yeah, so that was good. Well, same. And, and I recommend it. And um, somebody gave me the advice that um, if you are serious about getting published, have a good chunk of book two ready, yes. whatever that is, whether it's a sequel or not, because um, after the the amazing joy finally of getting an agent and a publisher and all of that, suddenly the pressure is on yes. actually for the next one. Yeah. And you, you've had many years to perfect book one and you now have months to get book two ready. And it really, really helps if you're a long way down that path. And if the voice is already there and, and the characters are living, then... I mean, I, I regret that... And I know this... I mean, people will... will um... 
you know, may resent this, um, but I did not have those years of trying and failing that a lot of people have. Mm. And as a result, I did not have anything in my back, you know, my back <laughs> locker, as it were, to go back to and change. Everything had to come new. And I wanted to keep the momentum up. I wanted to mm. keep writing. And I think every idea I've ever had has turned into a book somehow. So as a result, you know, every time I finish a book, I'm just scratching around, desperately trying to think of something. That's amazing. So how many books now? I think it's, I think... I think this next one, which is coming out next year, is going to be the 12th, I think. In how many years? About, about... Um, so I started, I did the course in January 2008. And then When I Was Joe was published 2010. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I've been published 10 years. 12 books, 10 years, not bad. I think it's 12 books. I feel, I feel I need to count now. <laughs> Four, maybe it's eleven. Yes, eleven published, and then one, one, one on way. its way, which we will, which we will come to. <laughs> um, and so, I suppose we we were debut young adult authors at about the same time. Um, you, you were slightly ahead of me, I think, and you had a, this great work rate going on. Um, and you'd published about six books, I think, when we we taught together that was so lovely it was great we, we did, did alternate weeks at city lit and we were teaching a specific young adult course which i don't think we would do now because young adult literature has become such a difficult thing for publishers to sell mm-hmm. um but interestingly what happened with us was similar to what happened to you i guess we had a particularly good group of students about six of them who Wonderful really really students. gelled and they were working on really interesting stuff and they were very dedicated and they then created a, a group, um, which you were busy because you suddenly had a new job, didn't you? I felt very bad. I abandoned you on the course <laughs> because um, it was one of those moments you have in a writing career. Suddenly a, a day job comes up yeah. and the money that you get from writing young adult books is so very lucky, not really enough to, to earn a living. And suddenly a day job came up and my husband got down on his knees and begged. (laughs) And I was like, yes, okay, I better do this. But it did mean I had to leave the the course and the class, which I really regretted. And they they missed you. But it was features editor of the Jewish Chronicle, wasn't it? So it wasn't a job that you could easily not take up. Well, it's a fun job. And it's weird because the Jewish Chronicle was my first ever newspaper. Mm -hmm. So and where I started where I was 18. So I went back and I felt I was 18 again. (laughs) And I, I carried on with these students, and they're they're still together. They're still writing together. I love them. They're they're shortlisted. Uh, there's a couple of them agented. It's all it's all kind of coming together for them, and they're going to be on the podcast soon, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, so the circle continues. I would say um, I, the the class that I did with Amanda, we then set up a writing group mm. afterwards with Amanda, mm-hmm. and from that group, I think there was one year where. Between us, we had six books coming out. Oh, isn't that So I think a writing group can be the most wonderful thing. I really miss that writing group. And we would give each other feedback and... And and we felt very much a sense of, you know, sort of auntiehood about each other's books. You know, we 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 knew the books and we cared about the books and we cared about each other. And yeah. it's fantastic. I find that there's a, a point in, in the life of all of my books when I... I really, I'm losing the faith and I need someone to give it back to me. 
uh, funnily enough, with with the one that's that's hopefully coming out quite soon. That was you. <laughs> that was so nice. well, I think I think we can. You know, I think in lots of ways we we actually trust each other. Yeah. To and I think you need that. You need trusted readers who understand. You know what you're doing and what you're what you're going for, and we'll give you honest criticism. Yeah. Although there was nothing to criticise about your book. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so um, I'm looking at my notes here. Um, we ended up both of us writing for young people of between sort of eleven and fifteen. Would you say? Um, what was it that drew you to writing for them? I think it was the realisation. I think it was because I had this idea of a boy in witness protection. Mm. Uh, teenage, the teenage years are fabulously interesting years because you are going through a massive change. Your emotions are heightened. Mm. As a writer, you can get away with your characters doing things that would be considered deranged <laughs> if it were an adult <laughs> character um, or even a, a child. You know, mm. the teenagers have a particularly interesting response to things. And also they're thinking about who they are, mm. their identity, um, and they're free enough to go out and do interesting things. I had been living in Amsterdam for a long time and had just come back to the, the UK and I was, everything about London felt fresh and new to me. So I was going on buses and I was listening and I was thinking, these are very interesting people. Um, but it was new for me because my children, when I started writing, were 11 and 7. Yeah. So I didn't really know anything about teenagers. And I think the extra effort that I had to make to think myself into the head of, at first, a teenage boy actually paid off because I was really paid attention. Um, and then later on, of course, my house was full of teenagers. So it was very easy research. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> Now it's harder because now they're all they're growing up a bit. Yeah, I agree with that. But you, you were saying to me earlier that you didn't know that YA was a thing at the oh, time. So I, you were just writing this thing that you well, didn't I, know that it kind of existed. I blush now because... I did no market research whatsoever. I just thought, this is a good idea. What would I have liked to have read when I was about 13? Mm. And I just wrote a book for me as a 13-year-old girl. And as a 13-year-old girl, I wanted to read about a very good-looking boy who was in terrible peril <laughs> and who, you know, that, that's what I wrote. And that's, you know, and I knew that I would have loved that. And I didn't really analyse it very much. And then at one point when I was writing it, I wandered into a bookshop. Oh, bookshop. Oh, how exciting. And I looked at the books and I thought oh there's a whole load of books for teenage readers which when I was growing up hadn't really existed you, you just had children's books and then at about the age of 13 you morphed into adult books so I was oh look and there are other books about crime and there are, might even be other books about witness protection oh I do hope there there aren't yeah. and then I also noticed oh there's an awful lot of books labelled dark romance because it was the age of twilight yes and um um, that didn't worry me as much as it probably should have done. But I think it was very freeing. I think the fact that I wasn't thinking commercially and I wasn't really worrying about would there be a market for this, I think enabled me to write and believe in the book. And although I very much wanted it published, I wasn't really thinking how do you go about being a successful published author? I was just thinking how can I create something that I would have wanted to read? And I think other other teenagers will. And it has always had a very good response from teenagers. Yes, I think that freedom sounds very healthy. 
I also think that a blurb that says very good looking teenage boy in peril <laughs> should well, just, it, just use it. If you're writing thing, that book, use it from us. One thing that really surprised me was that when I wrote it and when it was published, people would say to me, is it a book for boys or for girls? Mm. And I go, well, of course, it's for both. Mm. And they would be really surprised by that. Um, and actually, I was all, I thought I was writing for girls but because I was a girl. But um, actually what was really lovely was I would get emails, and I still get to emails from boys who say, I don't really like books, but I liked your book. And I think, oh, Wasn't it wonderful. the most stolen book from prison, uh, prison libraries? libraries yes. Yeah, I love yeah. that. It may have been, I don't know, all sorts of reasons um, that might have been, um, I don't know. But yes, it was quite popular. And in fact, in it turned into a trilogy, and there is a section of the trilogy, the last book, which is set in a Young Offender Institute, because I just thought, all my readers. Yes, that's that's where the most dedicated readers are. And we're going to talk about structure in a minute, I think. And you mentioned that you'd taught on an MA as well, which sounds very interesting. I taught on an MA um, at City. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really teach. I would give a lecture once a year on YA, um, but I mentored students and I also marked their work. And I found it very interesting that an MA was rather different from a creative writing course because it was much more about theory. Mm -hmm. And I think theory is, never found it wildly useful because I think it can, I mean, I had some students who who were so bothered about keeping to the track of, you know, the hero is here and now we have to have the the hero's turning point and now we have to have this they lost touch with actually caring about what happens next yes and i think that you know that can trip you up an awful lot so i'm i think theory is great if you if you really need it but it's never been very helpful to me but i also have friends who do things completely differently for me and they find it very useful so Exactly. One one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is hopefully just to show everybody that there there's no one way to do this. If it works for you, use it. If it doesn't, don't. And when I'm in the agony of actually writing a book, I do often think I wish I knew more about theory. So, you know, I wish there was some easier way of doing this than kind of just getting in there with the characters and finding out what happens next. But even when I plan things, I find they just go off piste. So. Yeah, me too. But... Moving on, um, one of your books, Leah's Guide to Winning the Lottery, then got turned into a musical, didn't it? And you were saying that you'd learned a lot from that. Um, Well, one thing I've learned is how long it takes to write a musical. And it has been many, 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 many years now. And we're still crawling towards a final version. Mm -hmm. Um, But it has been a fantastic way of learning an awful lot about adaptation to start with I, I, I often think it would have been easier just to start totally from scratch mm. um, and the story changed a great deal in the writing of the musical but also um, various things so we started off with uh, let's take pages of dialogue from the book and let's get drama students to read it and that was excruciating I hate to say you know all my carefully crafted dialogue just didn't work when people were actually acting it saying it out loud and I felt so embarrassed but then I learned to write really much more punchy dialogue Mm. no words wasted 
um, in lots of ways, writing a musical is much more like working on a newspaper than it is writing a book because you are very constrained in your the space, although the space is time. Mm. Um, and also you, it's much more structured. So a book, you can have diversions, you can have little bits of explanation and particularly you can drop clues um, without people noticing. In fact, it, a lot of it is about that. A lot of it is just dropping something in that eventually you can pick up. But a musical, you can't. it's much harder to do that, much harder to mislead and be unreliable. And you have to make sure that your audience understands what's going on and your audience understands what motivates... And also your actors understands the motivation of your characters and it wasn't until we did um we did a production at a drama school and I managed to go to most of the rehearsals and I sat next to the director and the director is saying to the actor well what intention what is your intention in this line mm. and I'm thinking I'm the writer I'm not <laughs> sure what the you know the one intention is of that line yeah um and it was so interesting but also in a musical you have this structure which goes First, you've got a first act, then you've got an interval, then you've got your second act. How do you differentiate the two? How do you end the first act and start the second one? How do you make sure in the first act each important character introduces themselves? And all of those things I find quite useful now to, to look at a book and think, if this were a musical, how mm -hmm. would this work? And also to give people their voice as it were in a song yeah and where would the songs be and how would the songs work um i i really enjoyed it i really learned a lot from it i've never thought about writing a novel that way before but now that you say it i really i will i'll bear that in mind with the book that i'm struggling with slightly so at you the moment one called love you know, <laughs> this is not a love song so uh, yes yes i know but i wasn't thinking about musicals see, then that would be very good <laughs> musical i think um but yeah, the, I, I love the idea of, okay, would this, what would this character's song be mm. and, and where would they sing it? Where would they have it? And um, yes, this idea of the, the interval and the first act, the, the nature, the, the character of the first act, all of that. That's interesting. I will, I will think about that, how I can apply it. I'm quite jealous of you because you, well, in many ways, but you, you write for Barrington Stoke. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do. So for listeners who don't know, Barrington Stoke is a publisher that really focuses on books for dyslexic readers. And that can affect the, the colour of the paper that they print on and the typeface that they use and most certainly the length of the books. Um, and I think they're quite clear, aren't they, that um, it doesn't affect the content of the stories at all. So they're very aware of the reading age that a book, any particular book, is aimed at um, and the content that's appropriate for that age group. But it will probably be, for example, a lot shorter than a typical book might be. Is that well, right? Well, it's, it's the, so the reading age might be eight, but the readers will be older. Yeah. So the reading age is different from the actual age of the, the people reading very often. And you do young adult books for them? Well, I do, yes. I'd, so I've done three young adult books for them. Three, four, no, three. And um, I love writing for Barrington Stoke. Everything about it is just perfect. They are the most wonderful people to work with, um, fantastic editors, and they know what it is that they're doing. Mm. Um, so they do something called a language edit. When you finish the book, they do a language edit and they apply the things that they know 
uh, help people to read um, who are who don't find reading very easy mm. um, and there can be some things like you know the tense or the amount of adjectives you use or the shape of your sentence um, and some people struggle with it mm. um, and I always find that it's it's never a problem because they have that expertise and they really understand the story that I'm telling and I've also found I think because I came from newspapers, I'm always trying to write things as clearly and accessibly as possible. Um, and therefore, actually, my style suits suits their sort of story very well. So for me, it's very much just a matter of making everything shorter. And I like writing. <laughs> I like writing a book in 15,000 words. I think that's fantastic. There's nowhere to get lost. Yeah. You know, all that kind of bagginess in the middle that can sometimes happen when you're thinking, oh, I suppose I'd better, you know, pad out this bit and expand this bit and oh, I'll just go off and wander over here. Mm. Um, it, 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 there's no room for it. And so... You know, it's it's a bit like, so when we lived in Amsterdam, we would um, fly a lot, Amsterdam to London. And flight from Amsterdam to London takes an hour. And basically you go up and then you have about 10 minutes and then you go down again. And that is what it's like writing a <laughs> It's like flying I to Amsterdam, folks. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Um, I'd imagine that they'd, they'd give you some kind of Bible of advice for how to, what what to do and what not to do before you started. But no, I get the impression you, was, you do what you do and then they do what they do to it afterwards. I was waiting for that Bible mm. and that it never arrived. Great. So no, they, they, I mean, we talked about the story. I wrote an outline. Yeah. The first book for them was called The Liar's Handbook. And that was uh, also Teenage Boy. And one of my favourite Teenage Boy um, narrators ever because he just tells lies all the time and so he was really fun to write um, the only thing about it was uh, I found he came out a bit younger than actually they, they wanted something that was 16 plus right normally I would write normally I'm always pushing at the upper end of YA yes but this one kind of came out sort of more slightly younger so maybe that was the effect of making it shorter mm. but I think it was just the voice he was just a rather exuberant teenager who just told lots of lies I loved, loved writing him. <laughs> so let's talk about what you're working on now. Well, so I've just finished a book for Scholastic, which is coming out in, I think, February 2021. And it is called What We're Scared Of. And this was actually, um, they came to me and they were very interested in writing, uh, me writing a book about um, the Jewish kind of element of my identity, if you like. Um, mm. And I resisted. I really wasn't very sure of this. I had written a Jewish book before. I wrote um, This Is Not A Love Story, which is about three people who are Jewish and their Jewish identity is part of that book, but there's lots of other things that are part of mm. that book. And I found that that the, the response to that was quite dispiriting because actually at that time, and I think it was 2014, there was very little interest in the fact that there are almost no books around about contemporary Jewish teenagers. Yeah. Um, Jewish books tend to be about the Holocaust and right. that yes. is quite difficult and rather depressing if you are a Jewish person, if you are a Jewish teenager, mm. because they tell a book, you know, they tell of terrible trauma, 
um, and victimhood. Yes. And I, I would never have wanted to write it. And I would never feel that I could write a book like that. That is not, that's actually not my story mm. to tell. And I think people should be pushed more towards reading non-fiction and reading about what actually happened. Mm. Um, there are some very, very good Holocaust books out there. I say Sandy Toxvig's um, Hitler's Canary is probably the best one that I've read. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of really bad ones and I would never want to write that. But I did want to write a book about what it felt like to be Jewish and um, Jewish and gay, Jewish and bisexual, Jewish and just Jewish. Um, And what I like about This Is Not A Love Story is that very rarely do I get people coming to me and saying... um, I really like it because it's a Jewish book. They like other elements of it. Yeah. And so that was... I like the bicycles, actually. (laughs) You know, it was was set in Amsterdam, which I knew very well. So setting was much more important than it is in most of my books. And um, I've had, you know, gay men saying to me, oh, I loved that book because it told about... One of the stories in it is someone who's coming to terms with his sexuality. So, it, you know, it was a sort of diverse book. And it was my Jewish book and I wrote it and I thought yeah, it might have there might have been a bit more understanding of the fact it was it is actually quite groundbreaking there are very few UK Jewish contemporary books um, anyway the one thing I didn't write about in that book very much was anti-semitism because mm. at the time when I was writing it oh, it was not a big deal yeah. and anyway so then Scholastic came to me and really you know, anti-Semitism had become something that was much more in the news and in our lives. Yeah. And I resisted. I did not want to write it. But eventually, just as I was going to say to my agent, "This, I can't do this, an entire plot line jumped into my head. And I uh, thought, oh, I can do this. And then I spent a year writing it. But the sense of responsibility... And the urgency of getting it right mm. made it. Mu- it's probably the most difficult book I've ever written, and I've now at the stage where I've delivered a first draft and I'm waiting for my edits. Oh, that's never stressful. Which is I'm sure you're totally relaxed. Yeah, totally relaxed about it. It'll be fine. So it's Jewish teenagers living in London now. So it's Jewish teenagers living somewhere not un- unlike where we are now. In fact, mm-hmm. South London. Oh so my goodness! South- You've gone south yes, of the river. Exactly. It's very alien territory <laughs> for me. Um, they are twins, and um, one of them is uh, wants to be a comedian, and the other one is quite an anxious soul. Um, and she was originally going to want to be a poet, but then I discovered that I can't really write poetry, um, and. Uh, they have um, different experiences, but really um, it's about them discovering what it means to them to be Jewish and also discovering uh, that there are some really horrible, evil people out there. Mm-hmm. So it was quite difficult to write. I look forward to reading it when it comes Thank out. Um, which brings us on to Own Voices. Um <laughs> In a week, we're recording this uh, in early February. Am I right there? Yes, Mm -hmm. we are. And this is the week where there was the Barnes & Noble cover fiasco, which will probably have been and gone by the time that you hear this. But there was a great fanfare around the fact that um, there was going to be a series of books launched 
that the classics, um, but with uh, people of colour on the covers. And I imagine that everybody behind that initiative thought that, you know, that all the diversity crowds would be thrilled out of their minds and that everyone who cares about diversity in, in books was absolutely furious <laughs> because you can't just slap a cover on a book written by a white person about a white experience at a time when white people kind of ruled everything and say that that has solved the problem. Um, I felt very passionate about it because one of the things I want to do, I mean, we've talked a lot about teaching today, but I want to, to do what I can to enable the very diverse writers in and around London to be able to share their experiences because I'm lucky enough to read a lot of the manuscripts which are wonderful and, uh, and tell stories that I don't see out there about being a, a, a teenager from um, a, a Muslim background or a religious cult background or a Jewish background, whatever it might be. Um, and and a lot of those books need nurturing to come to light and they're not making it through the nurturing process yet. So the stories are there uh, and the talent is there, but the books on shelves are not. And simply for me, slapping a cover on a book that's been out there for 150 years and saying this fixes the problem doesn't do it. Um, but that's me. So <laughs> how do you feel about own voices? You've just written one of your own own voices books. <laughs> so I feel that it's a it's an incredibly difficult subject because people get um, very confused about it. Mm. And there is this, this feeling that... Um, People own, people own certain stories and they own certain experiences. Yeah. And I think that is wrong. I think that um, we should be free to write about whoever and whatever we want. And I think that's as true of um, minority groups as anyone else, because what you don't want are the minority group writers being put in a little box yep. which says representation and then not feeling free to write anything else. It was very, very important to me that my first book was not about myself. It was not yeah. about some middle class Jewish girl um, who was shy and bookish. And, you know, that that wasn't it was about a unbookish Catholic working class boy. And my task was to make him believable. Mm -hmm. and, my t and I knew that the success or failure would be if people like him would read the book and believe it and like it. Mm. Um, I, however, did not make him black because I felt that that was a step that would have been too far, A, for me as a writer, but also too far into someone else's story. And I think that is, it's knowing how far you can go and still be respectful and um, accurate. You want yeah, to be accurate. You want to be, you want your book to feel authentic. I have read an awful lot of books written about Jews by non-Jews and I can see the intention is fantastic. The intention is totally benign, mm. but there are little details, tiny little details that make you think, as a Jew, you go, whoa, <laughs> yeah. what is that? You yeah. know, what does, what am I meant to read into that? You know, so you might have someone 
um, looking at shellfish. They might be looking at shellfish. And a Jew, most Jewish people, particularly historical Jewish people, would look at shellfish and go, ugh, that's something that you would never eat. It's like, it's like disgusting. Yeah. You know? But they don't necessarily, the writer doesn't necessarily know that. Yeah. And therefore you get a, mmm, that looks tasty, <laughs> you know, response. And then you think, oh, that's very... And then, you know, for me, it's very distracting. Then it's just lost you. It's lost me. And, and yes. the, 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 the gap between author and character, you know, it, it just, you just, it, you don't believe it anymore. Oh, I'm so glad that you've encapsulated that thank you yeah. I mean I, I have um, a, a Nigerian Londoner in, in the book that I'm writing at the moment uh, because I live in a hugely diverse city and it feels absolutely wrong to me to write a book set in 2016 that does not have people of colour in it but th exactly that is what I feel on a bound to get right and I yes I am going to use sensitivity readers yes I'm going to use Nigerian Londoners that I know I'm doing it right now and saying what have I got wrong yeah. please tell me because I it doesn't need to be wrong I can fix whatever it is it might come across as patronizing I might have left something out um, I don't know yet um, but I, I will not let it go out until enough people are happy with it and I think also more than one person because it can be that somebody says well in our culture we do this yeah. And actually they do, but they make Exactly. Doesn't. I mean, that's the other thing, that I'm writing about these Jewish girls, but then their experience is not my experience. They're, they are actually very different to me. And although I understand um, a lot about, I mean, you can never, ever have uh, one experience, you know, one experience of being Jewish or one experience of this. You can have an understanding um, and you can know a lot about a community, but Every individual is different. Yeah. And I remember really when my first book, um, there's a girl who cuts herself and I had someone who knew a lot about, you know, the general experience of self-harm saying, oh, well, they don't do this because that's not how they do it. And mm. I'm like, wait, but she, this is how she did it. This is my character. Yeah. And I think you must never lose touch of the fact that we are all individuals, but in t cultural terms, you want to get everything right. And the other thing is that you want to do everything you can to make the industry more diverse. Oh, well, yes. And that is, you know, we've taught people, we've encouraged people, you need to read outside your own experience, you need to shout about books, and also you need to be there almost holding the hand of people who find it difficult to speak up about their experience. Because I think um, there's now, you know, it, it's it's the... It, <laughs> <laughs> the the tone of the debate has become so polarised mm. that immediately someone sort of puts their hand up and says, well, actually, I find this a little bit difficult and a little bit upsetting and I don't think you've got it quite right. Then um, the, per the, the author feels very got at and feels that they're being censored. They're not being censored. But publishers, and I really feel editors, publishers should be the ones who are sensitive and the ones who are looking for this and who are, are questioning themselves all the time. Um, one of my big things is actually in Britain is class, is that we are such a middle class society. Mm. We don't really understand how that affects us. Um, and I, mean, I remember once as when I was writing When I Was Joe, I had, uh, you know, we have a, a, a poor boy and his mother and they live in a flat 
and I, I wrote a line it was something like um, I took a kitchen knife from the dishwasher and then I thought <laughs> there's no dishwasher you know stop it there's no dishwasher and I think you know constantly when we're writing characters uh, even if we think unless they are completely us unless they are our story we don't know them we need to really know them and that includes having a, a, a an understanding that other people's lives are different from our own and if we don't understand that we shouldn't be writing we shouldn't be writing fiction we should actually just be writing non-fiction and going and asking people about their yeah. lives um and i think you touched on on something which is which is important that publishers aren't going to be able to capture all of this properly in the editing process unless they reflect that too and there's and they know this I mean goodness every one of them knows this there is so much work to be done to make publishing houses more do you think reflective they know this? Of diversity. I don't know that they well, do. Well, the individuals that I speak to do. I'm not quite sure what they're doing about it yet, but I do see I do see um people creating their own agencies for example now their own small publishing houses it's sort of happening in a quite entrepreneurial way which I find very exciting of well it's it's not happening anywhere big so I'm just going to go out there and do it myself I think, and I, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. I think the thing that excites me most is when I see things like Hachette Children's Books now operating out of Manchester yeah things like that we are too London centric mm. Um, well, London, here we are, two, two white well, London-based middle-aged ladies complaining about the exactly, publishing industry. Exactly. But I do think I am diverse in disguise. I mean, the thing about being Jewish is quite interesting because most Jewish people, not all Jewish people, are white. Many are middle class, but not all mm. are middle class. Um, my husband, in fact, is very working class background. And I think that actually um, there is an assumption that... Uh, all middle class people, all white middle class people um, are not marginalised, but actually yeah. a lot are, are yeah. come from marginalised backgrounds um, and should be looking to, you know, the, we are the ones who should be helping other marginalised groups get their voices and get heard and we should be insisting, you know, we should be calling out the books that are sort of not diverse and I worry that the insistence on own voices actually stops uh, the rest of us having or not the rest of us but the rest of you, you know? <laughs> yeah I'm, um, I'm trying to say yes I feel marginalized it, it too scares, I don't it scares people off it scares people off well I think uh, disability for example is the thing that you and I both know quite a bit about yeah, we do. and I think that it it actually if you insist on own voices, own voices, own voices. It scares people off diversity. Diversity is important and our books should be diverse yeah. and we should be able to use research, imagination and sensitivity to create authentic characters. We yeah. shouldn't be scared of that. So diverse but accurate and also not requiring someone from a marginalised background to write only about that. Yes, there but are, yeah. making space for people from a marginalised background to show show <laughs> what they can do and to be uh, the the experts if you like you know so i i can write a book about a gay man you know gay boy finding out that he's gay but 
I'm also going to say, you know, read all these other people, read these people who are writing from first-hand experience. This happens to be an area where I'm not writing from first-hand yeah. experience. But I would hope that you wouldn't send that out there unless you talk to quite a few people who've been yeah, through that experience. Yeah, talk to people and, and also just read, read, you know. Yeah. There's a lot out there that you can read. There's always things that you can read. Yeah. So we've solved that problem. Um, it was, it was a pleasure. It. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I don't think we have. I. Um, but yes, it's it's what's what's on our on our minds a lot at the moment. I think um, it is disgusting how uh, unaware people are of the need for diverse voices and diversity, and how how, how white middle class everything is. So many things. Yes, I mean, I'm sure that there are many places in the in the country where around the UK where that that does reflect people's experience. I mean, here's me living in, in the middle of South London. It doesn't <laughs> reflect my experience. You know, it's 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 very diverse around here, which is fantastic. One of the reasons I'm here. Um, quickly before we finish, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about UKYA versus US young adult fiction. Ooh. Um, because I think there is a perception, I mean, again, we've, between us, we've written a lot of YA books, UK YA books. Um, and there's a perception that it's doing really well because I think it does, it gets some great publicity sometimes and we write good books. Um, but it's very hard for us to, to live on. Um, it's a difficult, difficult market. And yet the US market still seems to be thriving from what I can see from, from over here. Um... Have you have you noticed any particular differences between the two? Um, what I think is that somehow uh, American voices in YA are seen as the standard mm. and British voices are not. And I don't understand why that should be. And I think sometimes when I look at a Carnegie list, which is full of American voices and I then look at the bestseller list which is also full of American voices I think why do we bother and what does it take to make um, both the commercially minded people but also the literary minded people sometimes it, that is the same thing but often it's not to actually value the fact that British teenagers are quite interesting and they have their own experience and Yes, we all love to read about other cultures, and I think America is another culture, but American culture is so dominant in the teenage years um, because all the television, a lot of the television comes from America, and a lot of the books come from America. And I think, well, our kids are uh, maybe get the short end of the stick sometimes, you know, that they're, there's, and I think partly it's very difficult to write accurate YA um, about contemporary British kids because they're doing so many exams. So they have, <laughs> yes. you know, so, I mean, when you're writing it and you're trying to write something realistic, you know, then you start saying, well, I can't write about January to June because they're just doing revision all yeah. the time. And they don't drive. And they don't drive. Yeah, and they don't do all those fun things that, yeah, they that drink American a lot. teenagers do. Um, which perhaps is why fantasy I, I would be my exception to this if you're not writing about sort of contemporary yeah. um, British teens. I've then. never managed to write fantasy I would love to write fantasy yeah, I'm very scared either. of it yeah, because yeah. I think people who write fantasy know fantasy and I yeah. don't really know fantasy I've always enjoyed what I've read of it but I can't do it myself 
sadly. I haven't tried. Um, I should try. I just think you've talked about television and my favourite television at the moment is Sex Education, which I'm in the middle of season two and just loving it. Have you seen it? I have. I saw um, about two minutes of the first one and I went, British children who are pretending to be American. Oh, my (laughs) God, I can't cope with this. Um, And I switched it off. It is interesting. It's interesting, isn't it, that it does... It's. I love it now. It's a lovely hybrid. It's interesting that it feels it needs to be a hybrid in a way. So they, they are these these Welsh. They're in Wales. These teenagers are very Welsh <laughs> landscape, and yet they have bleachers and varsity jackets, <laughs> things that we do not have. But it's it's funny because my children in Amsterdam went to the international school, which is actually you know very not Dutch, mm. um, very international and slightly American. So actually I can get my head around it reasonably easily. I just haven't tried because yeah. I think I went, why aren't they Welsh? Why aren't they <laughs> British in a very small-minded way. Well, it didn't only for about five minutes. I'd recommend you go back to it. I mean, I think it should be compulsory viewing in all schools. But it does, I think it does have a lovely British tone to it, something about British writing. Um, There's a sharpness, there's an edginess to it that I feel it's very, very us, uh, a wittiness. It's Um, it's funny because actually some of the things I say about um, UKYA now come over as very Brexity. You know, it's very kind of, why aren't we proud of who we are and we are British and I'm not Brexity at all. So that kind of appalls me a little bit about myself. I think we can be very proud of, of our culture, but also very open to other cultures. Too. I think I think it's I think it's quite good if I always think the thing about YA is that you're writing for people who are going to think about the issues and think about the subjects and I like to write about subjects that are quite big subjects Mm. you know criminal justice and money and things like that um homelessness fame and yeah fame and um the internet you know the latest one I did for Barrington Stoke is you know can you give up your phone for six weeks and that was a huge subject to take on mm. and I think you've got this really thoughtful interesting group of readers and so I think well, why not think about what's going on around you I want them to care and get involved in politics and you know care about things I don't want them to think oh well Britain's the same as America it's not I really love that thank you one last question before I say goodbye um tips for writers I always try and ask what your tip for aspiring writers would be pre-published writers well I think there has to be a certain arrogance in thinking that what you write is worthy of being read and I think there has to be an excitement you know you have to actually sit down and want to want to write just because it's fun and I think if you've got that feeling but also allow yourself to write the crap first draft you know it doesn't have to be perfect I used to think you could only write a book if you had it all mapped out in your head every single Mm. word every single word perfect and then you'd sit down with your quill pen and start writing and that's not the case you know it doesn't have to be perfect but just keep at it a little bit every day and then I wish I could take my own advice (laughs) and then uh, if you love it if you love writing it then people will love reading it And if not, then you've loved writing it anyway. So there you go. Thank you so much. 
I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at PrePubPodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.